Welcome to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast. My name is Cheryl. And I'm June. In today's episode, we'll complete Michael Jackson's criminal trial, covering the defense witnesses, the verdict, and the immediate aftermath of the trial. You can find all our source material for this episode on our website, michaeljacksoncaseforinnocence.com. Voice actor Derek Black returns to help us conclude our final chapter on the Arviso allegations. The defense witnesses take much less time to cover, not only because there are fewer of them, 53 versus 87, but also because they're straightforward. Unlike so many of the prosecution witnesses, who can't keep their stories straight, have shady histories, and have conflicts of interest that take time to explain, the defense witnesses are predominantly consistent, credible, and clean. This prosecution team leaves no stone unturned, but conveys no evidence of discrediting conflicts of interest in these defense witnesses. The defense begins their case on May 5, 2005, with their first witness, Wade Robson, who's 22 at the time of the trial. Robson describes how he and his mom pursued Jackson in the hopes that it would help his career. He denies any inappropriate behavior by Jackson and withstands a tough, rapid-fire attack by the prosecution's strongest trial attorney, Ron Zonin. In her book, Conspiracy, Aphrodite Jones says the cross-examination got ugly with Zonin repeatedly grilling Robson from many different angles, but Robson never wavers. Zonin asks him, Mr. Robson, did Michael Jackson ever molest you at any time? Absolutely not. Mr. Robson, did Michael ever touch you in a sexual way? Never, no. Mr. Robson, has Mr. Jackson ever inappropriately touched any part of your body at any time? I'm telling you, nothing ever happened. Jones notes that every time, Robson's answer was a confident and unwavering no. He will change his story in 2012 and say he was molested by Jackson. We'll get more into Wade Robson's testimony and the change in his story in upcoming episodes. Brett Barnes testifies next for the defense, also on May 5th. He's 23 at the time of the trial. Earlier prosecution witnesses Ralph Chacon and Adrian McManus had testified to seeing Barnes molested by Jackson. Similar to Wade Robson, Barnes met Jackson in Australia at age five and first visited Neverland in 1991, around the same time as Robson. Barnes says he's visited Neverland about ten times, mostly staying in Jackson's bedroom suite. But he says Jackson never asked him to stay there. It was Barnes himself who wanted to. He stayed in Jackson's suite because that's where the fun was. There were other kids staying up late playing video games and watching movies. He says nothing inappropriate ever happened. Here's some of his testimony, starting with a question by the defense. Are you aware of any allegations being made that Mr. Jackson inappropriately touched you when you were with him? Yes, and I'm very mad about that because it's untrue and they're putting my name through the dirt, and I'm really not happy about it. Has Jackson ever molested you? Absolutely not, and I can tell you right now that if he had, I wouldn't be here right now. Has Mr. Jackson ever touched you in a sexual way? Never. I wouldn't stand for it. Has Mr. Jackson ever touched your body in a way that you thought was inappropriate? Never. It's not the type of thing that I would stand for. Barnes describes the time spent in Jackson's suite as party-like and fun. His sister was also there, along with Michael's cousins, nieces, and nephews, the Cassio family, and Macaulay Culkin. 
Barnes says Jackson has been a lifelong friend and that he was like a member of their family. The prosecution, in their cross-examination, questions every year of his life, and Barnes stays consistent in his denials. He says he feels very fortunate that he and his family were able to travel with Jackson on the dangerous tour. On May 6th, Wade Robson's mother testifies for Jackson's defense. Joy Robson says she never had any suspicions about Jackson's behavior with Wade or any other child. Joy explains in her testimony how much time they all spent together. It wasn't just Wade and Michael. She says she also hung out in bed with Jackson and her kids watching movies and eating popcorn. Joy testifies that she was concerned about the manipulative questioning tactics from police in the 1993 Chandler case and how those tactics might affect Wade. Joy confirms that she was allowed to walk freely in and out of Jackson's bedroom, day or night, counter to the prosecution narrative. She confirms that Jackson put no restrictions whatsoever on when she could enter his bedroom suite. When she stayed at Neverland, she says she stayed in the main house, not in a guest house, so it was easy to access Jackson's suite. Next on the stand is Wade's sister, Chantel Robson. Contrary to the media and prosecution narrative that girls weren't included in Neverland fun, Chantel says she never felt excluded. She could go in Jackson's bedroom suite at any time, and she felt she had a close relationship with Jackson, separate from Wade. She says she never felt like Jackson wanted anything from any of them, including Wade. The next defense witness on May 6th is Marie Elizabeth Barnes, the mother of Brett Barnes. She testifies that she was invited by Jackson to stay in his bedroom suite, which she did, but also stayed in a guest house. Her sense of freedom to stay in Jackson's suite at any time is contrary to the prosecution narrative that Jackson tried to separate parents from their kids. She says her daughter also stayed in Jackson's suite, as well as her son, when they went to Neverland, and she never saw anything suspicious and felt completely comfortable with Jackson. Brett's mother testifies that Jackson is genuinely like a part of her family and says their feelings are mutual. She says it was her idea to testify. She was not asked by Jackson's defense. Brett Barnes' sister testifies next on May 6th and says she never felt unwelcome in Jackson's room and would stay there with her brother. She says Jackson always said that his house was their house and they could go anywhere in the main house that they liked. She is asked by the prosecution, Can you tell me why you didn't spend the night in Mr. Jackson's room as much as your brother? And she answers, Because I'm a girl and I prefer to have a little bit of privacy. The next defense witness on May 9th is Violet Silva, a longtime safety coordinator at Neverland who was working during the Arviso stay. Here's Silva's testimony about the Arviso boys' behavior at Neverland. They were pretty reckless at the time. They were driving very fast in the golf carts. They were also driving ranch vehicles. They'd get in a ranch vehicle and take off and drive, and we'd have to stop them. You know, they were young. They couldn't drive a regular vehicle. Silva also testifies that Janet Arvizo was unstable and seemed to suffer from mood swings. She says she saw Davelin around the boys doing the same fun things they were, contradicting Davelin's testimony that she was by herself at all times. Silva describes how there was constant patrolling of Neverland, including around the main house. She says there had been security breaches, including an uninvited fan who made it past security to the second floor of the main house. This is one of the reasons they have codes to get into the house. All employees and guests get these codes. She confirms that security personnel at Neverland do not carry firearms, only pepper spray. Silva says she knew the Barnes family, the Robson family, the Chandler family, the Culkin family, 
and never observed any inappropriate behavior by Jackson with any kids. She also says she saw girls participate equally in the activities at Neverland. She testifies that her own children attended Family Day at Neverland with Jackson numerous times. On May 12th, 23-year-old Macaulay Calkin testifies for the defense. He says he's the godfather of Jackson's kids and shares a unique bond with Jackson because they were both child stars. Culkin notes that Jackson also connects with Liza Minnelli, Liz Taylor, and Shirley Temple for the same reason. He testifies that he visited Neverland many times starting at age 10, often going with his whole family, and says his friendship with Jackson is ongoing to the present day. He says he also spent time with Jackson at his condo in L.A. and spent time with him in New York and London. Culkin adamantly denies Jackson ever did anything suspicious and says he was never improperly touched. Culkin testifies that he had good, clean fun with Michael at Neverland and that his whole family was always invited anywhere on the property. He corroborates the testimony of many others that Jackson had an open-door policy and that no room was off-limits, including Jackson's bedroom. Culkin says his parents came in and out of the bedroom as they wished, and his dad would come into the room early in the morning, waking him so they could go horseback riding. He says he's never seen Jackson do anything improper or suspicious with another child, such as Wade Robson or Brett Barnes. He recalls times at Neverland when a bunch of people hung out and played games in Jackson's suite. Culkin clarifies that the sleepovers weren't planned, it's just that kids would play until they fell asleep. It could be in the bedroom suite, it could be in the movie theater. He says it could be anywhere. Here's some of his testimony, starting with a question by the defense. What do you think of the allegations? I think they're ridiculous. It was amazing to me that nobody asked me whether or not the allegations were true. They just threw it out there and didn't double-check it. Are you saying these prosecutors never tried to reach you to ask your position on this? No, they didn't. Do you know if any police officer from Santa Barbara has ever tried to call you to see what the truth is? No. Are you aware that the prosecutors claim they are going to prove that you were molested by Jackson? Excuse me? So the prosecution claims that Calkin was molested without stopping to get his side of the story. Their basis for calling Calkin a victim comes only from the stories of Philip Lamarck and Adrian McManus. McManus had stolen from Jackson, owed him money, and originally swore under oath that she'd seen nothing inappropriate. Lamarck was caught lying on the stand and was changing his story as the tabloid bidding went up. Neither went to authorities, but only came up with stories once there was money to be made. That they're willing to label Culkin a victim and make him the subject of unwanted ridicule and media hype, based only on the dubious stories of disgruntled former employees, exposes the prejudice of this prosecution. To me, there's no clearer case of confirmation bias than with Macaulay Culkin. Snedden completely disregards the obvious credibility flaws of his witnesses because their stories help his case. D.A. Tom Snedden appears wholly unbothered about the casualties of his biased investigation. The defense calls David Legrand as a witness on May 13th. Legrand is a corporate lawyer who worked for Jackson for about three months in early 2003 and says he was so suspicious of three of Jackson's close aides that he hired a private detective to investigate them. Legrand's suspicions were based on accounts indicating that almost a million dollars had been dispersed to Jackson Associates Conitzer or Wisner. Legrand says to the jury, I became suspicious of everybody. Everybody wanted to benefit from Mr. Jackson in one way or another. 
Legrand was fired shortly after asking Conitzer about the suspicious withdrawals. Legrand's statements are very similar to the testimony of Ann Kite and Debbie Rowe, among others, who claim that Jackson was a victim of opportunistic vultures in his inner circle. When asked if Jackson was planning with his associates how to respond to the documentary, Legrand responded that Jackson was concerned, but not about the same things as everyone else. He says Jackson seemed very concerned about how Bashir failed to blur the images of his children as promised in the documentary. Asked if Jackson was worried that the documentary would not be positive, Legrand said that Jackson didn't use the word positive. He says Jackson expected accuracy and sincerity. I especially appreciated this testimony from Legrand because he was an outsider. He wasn't affiliated with Jackson before being hired in 2003. The example of his being fired as he's trying to protect Jackson through a legitimate investigation is a pattern that's repeated. The associates around Jackson, who aim to be just and fair, often get pushed out by those who are exploiting him. On May 14th, Jackson's initial attorney in the case, Mark Garagos, testifies. Garagos says he was hired in February 2003, right around the time of the Bashir documentary release. He testifies that he was gravely concerned that the family might take advantage of the situation after the documentary release. He says he thought Michael should have nothing to do with them, calling it a pending disaster. Garagos says he did research and hired an investigator to look into the background of this family to see if they had a litigious history and was disturbed when he found out about the J.C. Penney case. He also ordered private investigator Bradley Miller to keep the family under surveillance. I was concerned they were meeting with a lawyer to make some accusations or sell their story to tabloids. I was trying to prevent a crime against my client. I thought that they were going to shake him down. Knowing that Garagos hired a private investigator to keep tabs on the family helps to understand why Janet Arviso testified to being followed and watched. It was happening. But this was standard procedure for an attorney trying to protect his client from the kind of litigation and fraud he'd discovered in Janet Arviso's history. On May 16th, the orthodontist who saw Gavin and Starr on an outing from Neverland testifies for the defense. The orthodontist says that no one was with the Arvizos at that appointment, that they could have walked out freely at any time, and she neither saw nor heard anything suspicious. She says Gavin was undisciplined and rifling through her office drawers without permission. The orthodontist assistant also testifies that Gavin was rude, acting superior, and he didn't want to follow the recommended treatment. She says the Arvizos were not acting afraid, and they didn't ask for the phone or ask for help. The next witness worked at the salon Janet Arvizo went to for her leg wax and says basically the same thing, that no one was with Janet and she never asked for help. Catherine Bernard also testifies on May 16th. She worked at the ranch for three and a half years as an administrative assistant. Bernard says Janet Arvizo called her often with requests during the Arvizo stay at Neverland. Janet called her on February 11th and asked to be taken to get a leg wax within the hour. Here's a quote from Bernard's testimony about Janet Arvizo. She was telling me how well Michael had been treating her and how he was a father figure to her kids. She was pretty much praising Michael. Bernard says she dropped Janet Arvizo at the salon for an hour and that Janet made no effort to try to escape. On May 17th, Neverland housekeeper Maria Gomez testifies that during her stay at the ranch, Janet Arvizo praised Jackson as a blessing to her family. 
and said he was like a father, and she wanted her children to call him dad. Gomez says later on in their stay, Janet started to complain about being held against her will and wanted to leave Neverland because three of Jackson's associates were keeping her from Jackson. This is contrary to Janet's account that she was kept from her kids, but it corroborates other testimony, including Garagos' account that he was trying to separate Jackson from the Arvizos. Gomez also testifies that while cleaning the guest room of Star and Gavin, she saw a backpack full of pornographic magazines. She says it was hard cleaning their room every day because it was such a mess. Neverland security guard Shane Meredith also testifies on May 17th, and he recounts how he caught Gavin and Starr by themselves drinking in Jackson's wine cellar. This contradicts both boys' testimony that they never drank without Jackson. Meredith also says the boys' behavior at the ranch was unruly, crashing golf carts and throwing trash around. Neverland chef Angel Vivenko testifies that during their stay, Star Arviso ordered him to add alcohol to a milkshake or he would have him fired, and another time held a knife up to his neck for no reason, making Vivanco nervous. He also testifies that the Arviso boys showed him pornographic magazines when he brought them food one night to their guest unit. On May 18th, the social worker who first interviewed the Arvizos in the middle of their Neverland stay testifies that the Child Protective Services interview took place at Janet Arvizo's boyfriend's house. She says all the Arvizos said wonderful things about Jackson that seemed genuine and unscripted. Gavin denied any abuse, and the social worker says his demeanor was playful, articulate, and that he appeared to enjoy the attention. She says Gavin was not withdrawn or mistrustful, behavior that she notes is common with sex abuse victims. The social worker says Janet repeatedly expressed her displeasure that Mr. Bashir's documentary showed her son's face without her permission and asked for help in persuading Jackson to send her children to private school. This is another example of Janet using indirect means for financial gain, trying to use the social worker to ask Jackson to pay for private school. She and another social worker met with Janet and spoke with her repeatedly on the telephone in February and March, when the family later says they were held captive. But Janet never appeared in distress, said they were held against their will, or asked for help. Simone Jackson, a 16-year-old cousin of Michael Jackson, was at Neverland when the Arvizos were there, and she testifies on May 18th that she saw the Arviso boys come in the kitchen and take a wine bottle, and when they noticed her, told her not to say anything. Simone also says that she had befriended Gavin's sister Davelin while staying at Neverland and says Davelin told her the family was going to Brazil soon and that their mother was very eager to go. This adds to the contradictory testimony about the Arvizos being forced to go to Brazil. The next day on May 19th, Simone's younger brother Rio Jackson testifies. He was 10 when he was hanging out with the Arvizos at Neverland after the documentary release. He says one night when hanging out with the Arviso brothers in their guest room, they turned to a TV station showing naked women, began masturbating, and suggested he do the same. Rio told them he didn't want to, and then went to Jackson's suite to stay that night. He only told Jackson about what they were watching on TV, but didn't say anything else about what they were doing. He did tell his sister Simone everything he saw. This testimony refutes the Arvizos that every night Jackson was at Neverland, the Arviso boys spent with him. Rio also testifies that he saw the boys steal items from drawers, including money belonging to a chef. 
He says he saw them run out of the ranch manager's office with money he believed they had taken. Also on May 19th, Fresh Prince actress Vernay Watson Johnson testifies that she became suspicious of Janet Arvizo while raising money for Gavin's cancer treatment. Johnson says that she had been an acting teacher for Gavin and was asked by Janet to help raise money for him. This request on its own is problematic because the Arvizo's medical bills were completely covered by their insurance. Johnson says she asked Janet to set up a special bank account for donations to her son, but Janet asked Johnson to put the money in her own personal account. Johnson abandoned her plans to help because she didn't trust Janet. This is another witness who contradicts Janet Arvizo's testimony that she never asked anyone for money. Johnson also testifies that she gave the Arvizos money and let them visit her home once, where they were very disruptive, rummaging through her things and jumping on her son's bed. Johnson says Janet would have the kids call her often, asking if they could stay overnight with her, and says Janet was always coaching them in the background, saying things like, Tell her you love her. Columnist Roger Friedman wrote that Vernay Watson Johnson was so devastating to the prosecution that they declined to cross-examine her. Declining to cross-examine shows how the prosecution wanted to get her off the stand as quickly as possible because of her damaging testimony, which they were apparently unable to challenge in any way. Aja Pryor is the next witness to testify, also on May 19th. She says she first met the Arvizos through her then-husband Chris Tucker in October 2000 and hosted them in their home. She got closer to the family when Davelin seemed to take to her, and she felt sympathy about Gavin's illness. She says Davelin and Gavin called her frequently. According to Pryor, during their five-week stay at Neverland, they repeatedly called her, and she never heard that they were in trouble or being held captive. In those conversations, she says the family praised Jackson and never accused him of any wrongdoing. She says Janet Arvizo told her, What a great man he is. He's an angel. His love is great. And Pryor says Janet made the same praising remarks about Chris Tucker. She praised Chris and I to the point where it made me uncomfortable, saying we were angels and how we have done so much for her family. She says Janet referred to her and Tucker as part of her family all the time. Pryor testifies that Janet said she was looking forward to setting the record straight in the rebuttal video that nothing inappropriate ever happened between Jackson and her son. Pryor also testifies that Janet had invited her to go with the family on their trip to Brazil, but Janet decided not to go when she found out Michael Jackson wasn't going. Pryor says Janet complained about the associates who were preventing her whole family from seeing Jackson during their Neverland stay. Judge Melville rules that the defense can't present testimony from two witnesses of the JCPenney incident. In the court plea, the defense states that one of the J.C. Penney guards will testify that the family was restrained in the parking lot but not beaten. And he says that Janet Arvizo even returned to J.C. Penney the next day, gave the guard a hug, and apologized. The defense also said that a bystander will testify that the family was nonviolently restrained. On May 23rd, Mercy D. Manriquez of the L.A. County Department of Social Services testifies that Janet Arvizo applied for welfare and food stamps two weeks after she received the settlement money from J.C. Penney, without disclosing the money as required, which is considered welfare fraud. On her welfare application, Janet swore under penalty of perjury that the family did not have medical insurance, even though they actually had full coverage. 
Local newspaper editor Connie Keenan testifies to how Janet called to solicit money for Gavin's illness, and then called back to ask her to run the request again because it didn't make enough money. Keenan recorded their conversation and says Janet not only lied about the cost of treatment, but says she and her readers were duped because Janet hadn't disclosed that she and her family had full health care coverage. Keenan also testifies that when one of her reporters went to bring a turkey to the family at Thanksgiving, she was turned away and Janet told her she wanted money. Also on May 23rd, the defense brought forward Gavin's aunt to testify about two blood drives she organized for Gavin. The aunt says that Janet told her in a phone call that she didn't need my expletive blood and that instead she needed money. On May 24th, Mary Holzer testifies for the defense. Holzer is an office manager and paralegal who was working for the Arvizo's own civil attorneys during the J.C. Penney case. Holzer testifies that Janet admitted to her that she was lying about the photos of her bruises used to support her abuse claims against J.C. Penney. Here is some of Holzer's testimony. I asked her if I could speak to Mr. Rothstein about it because we run a clean law firm and I really didn't feel that we should be involved in something like that. And she proceeded to call me daily and tell me she had told David, and David was raging mad, and that he was going to come after me, and that I better watch my back. How many times do you think Janet Arvizo threatened you and your daughter? I'd say about eight, nine times. Are there any other things you haven't described that she said to you when she threatened you? She just said she was scared for me and my daughter. That she didn't want to see anything bad happen to us, because she considered me her dear friend. When Holzer took Janet to have a medical exam for her alleged injuries from the J.C. Penney incident, she says Janet threw a tantrum. She threw herself down on the ground, started kicking and screaming, carrying on that the doctor was the devil and the nurses were the devil, and they were all out to get her. And I explained to her that they were only asking her standard questions that they ask in an independent medical examination, and they asked us to leave because she was so irate. Holzer is also asked in court, What did Janet Arvizo tell you about her children learning to act? Janet Arvizo said she wanted them to become good actors so she could tell them what to say and how to behave. Holzer says that Janet wanted to be present during the psychiatric exams of Gavin and Starr. When she found out she couldn't, this is what she allegedly told Holzer. Well, I'm pretty sure Gavin will get the story straight, but I'm not sure Starr will remember what we practiced and what I told him to say. So here's another story of how Janet is directing her sons to lie for money, which supports the argument that Janet's mental health and history of deceit are relevant to Gavin's accusations of molestation. Holzer also describes the Arvizo kids' effusive and manipulative behavior. Usually they would pop in every once in a while, and the children would come into my office and sit on my lap and draw me pictures, tell me how much they loved me, and write little notes and post it on my pinboard and say how great I was, and that I was helping their family. Holzer says that about three or four months before her testimony at Jackson's trial, Janet Arvizo called her again, telling her that she wanted to be friends with her. Jay Leno testifies for the defense on May 24th. After Gavin Arvizo got Leno's number through his connection with Jamie Masada, Gavin left some voicemails for Leno, with messages like, I'm a big fan, you're the greatest, and you're my hero, you're wonderful. These messages struck Leno as overly effusive and different from the many children with illnesses he spoke to each week. When they connected on the phone directly, Leno says Gavin seemed adult-like, and he heard someone talking in the background next to Gavin. 
Gavin had testified earlier that he never actually spoke to Leno, but Leno's testimony contradicts this. Leno wanted the calls by Gavin to stop and said it was unusual for a kid to call him since Leno was the one who initiated calls. ABC News reviewed Leno's earlier recorded police interviews and released excerpts from it in March 2005. Here's what Leno said to police about his conversation with Gavin. I could hear the mother in the background, in the way Gavin approached me saying, I love you, I watch you late at night, suggested something wasn't right. According to the transcript from the recorded interview, Leno told police that he thought they were looking for money. He thought Gavin sounded coached, and he said that the Arvizos finally found a mark in Jackson. The final defense witness on May 24th and 25th is comedian Chris Tucker. Tucker first met Gavin Arvizo at the Laugh Factory after Gavin's dad approached him and told him his son loved him. At the Arvizo's request, Tucker attended a benefit at the Laugh Factory for Gavin. A few days later, according to Tucker, Gavin told him they didn't make any money from the benefit, so Tucker wired them about $1,500. Here's another account of Gavin lying for money. The Arvizo's had medical insurance, so all of his bills were covered. However, these fundraisers were understood to be raising money for Gavin's medical treatment. Notably, Gavin's statement to Tucker that they didn't raise enough money mirrors his mother's when she told the newspaper that their first article didn't raise enough money. Tucker says that Gavin asked for his number as soon as they met and that all of the Arvizos would call him frequently. Janet called him numerous times over the two years of their relationship, crying about the health of her son and telling Tucker she felt he was their brother. Tucker says he tried to do nice things for Gavin, like taking him to the mall to buy sporting goods and playing basketball with him and his brother. He says he invited the family over to his house a number of times and took them to watch a Raiders game in San Francisco. One time when the family was over at his house, Gavin asked for money, and Tucker gave it to him. When the Arvizos came to the set of Rush Hour 2 at Tucker's invitation, the family overextended their stay from the few days Tucker planned to a couple of weeks, all on Tucker's tab. They even tried to upgrade their own accommodations. Tucker says everyone working on the Rush Hour set was trying to get the family to leave because of their disruptive behavior. Tucker testifies that the Arvizos then began calling to ask for the keys to one of his cars, which he loaned to them. Tucker became nervous about how frequently the Arvizos were calling him. When the Bashir documentary first aired, Tucker says the Arvizos called him to complain about the media onslaught. They wanted to get away from the media and wanted to see Michael Jackson. The phone records entered into evidence confirm that the calls were made from the Arvizos to Tucker. There were no calls from Tucker. Tucker says he flies the Arvizos to Miami to meet up with Jackson, and then he warns Jackson about the suspicious behavior of the Arvizos. Tucker says he considered Gavin and his brother Starr very sophisticated for their age, very smart and cunning, especially the indirect manner that they asked Tucker to buy them things. After the testimony from Chris Tucker, Mesereau will later say that he sensed it was the right timing to rest the case for the defense. Even though they had hundreds more witnesses ready to testify, Mesereau felt confident in resting their case early. But before we get to the verdict, we'll do a short summary of the defense witnesses. Through the consistent testimony of Wade Robson, Brett Barnes, and Macaulay Culkin, the defense was able to further discredit the former Neverland employees who earlier testified to witnessing their abuse. These men and their families all testified that they observed nothing suspicious. There was an open environment at Neverland, and Jackson never committed any sex abuse. 
there was a wealth of evidence to counter the captivity claims. Janet spoke to her kid's dance teacher, the social worker, her own boyfriend, Aja Pryor, and two different lawyers during and after the time of her alleged captivity, and said nothing to indicate she was being held against her will. Shop owners said that on the Arvizos' unsupervised outings during their stay, they never looked to be in distress or asked for help. Neverland employees confirmed this by saying anytime Janet wanted to go somewhere, she could go either through a limo service or one of the staff members would drive her. Janet did complain about two of Jackson's associates, but her complaints were focused on how they kept her away from Michael Jackson. These employees also saw the Arvizo kids not fearful, but freely interacting with other guests and having fun. We have defense testimony that continues the theme from prosecution witnesses that Jackson was out of the loop and being taken advantage of by those managing the PR crisis who were embezzling funds and pursuing their own agendas. There was evidence to contradict Gavin and Star Arvizo's testimony that they never had alcohol unless Michael Jackson gave it to them. They were caught drinking in the wine cellar by a security guard and were seen by other witnesses to have been sneaking alcohol from the kitchen and from Michael Jackson when Jackson wasn't around. The prosecution argued that Gavin didn't curse or drink and was well-behaved and innocent before hanging out with Michael Jackson. The defense had already debunked this argument using the prosecution's own witnesses, including a counselor from Gavin's school, who reported on Gavin's long history of violating school rules and disregarding any authority. One teacher even remarked on Gavin's cunning acting skills. This prosecution narrative continued to be discredited in the defense case, with Neverland employees and other guests testifying to how the Arvizo boys violated the ranch rules by driving vehicles unauthorized, defacing property, stealing money, sneaking alcohol, and threatening employees. These accounts are used by the defense to tie into a larger pattern of dishonest and entitled behavior by the entire Arvizo family, and a complete disrespect for any type of authority. Another example of this behavior is the Arvizo kids lying under oath for money in the J.C. Penney case and the defense argues that this pattern of lying for money under oath is continuing in their allegations against Michael Jackson. Using the testimony of Chris Tucker, Aja Pryor, and prosecution witnesses such as George Lopez, we see how the Arvizo kids didn't put celebrities on a pedestal, but instead played them to their advantage, working them for their money and gifts. The defense makes the case that Michael Jackson fits into this pattern of using celebrities for money through false pretenses. There was evidence of Janet Arvizo coaching her sons. From Vernay Watson-Johnson and Jay Leno, we heard how Janet was in the background during their phone calls with Gavin, and she was prompting him what to say. We heard from Chris Tucker how Gavin used his mother's ploy of saying they didn't make anything from the fundraiser to coax Tucker into giving him money. These stories match the testimony of paralegal Mary Holzer, that Janet told her she was having her boys take acting classes so she could tell them what to say and what to do. Holzer said Janet told her directly that she had coached them and what to say for their J.C. Penney interviews, corroborating her ex-husband's account that Janet made up stories for her kids to study, until months later when she filed a lawsuit. So after the defense rested its case, the jury was left to decide if Jackson was guilty of the following criminal charges. Count 1. Conspiracy involving child abduction, false imprisonment, 
and extortion. Counts two through five, lewd acts upon a child under 14. Count six, attempt to get a child to commit a lewd act upon Jackson. Count seven through 10, administering an intoxicating agent to assist in the commission of lewd acts upon a child. Jackson was facing up to 20 years in prison. Judge Melville also allowed the addition of four lesser felony counts of providing alcohol to minors. Legal analysts at the time interpreted these additional felony counts by the judge as a concession to the prosecution because their case was so weak, and these lesser offenses may help Snedden and his team from being completely humiliated. The jury deliberated for about 32 hours. On June 13, 2005, Jackson is acquitted of all 14 charges. Many in the media were in complete shock, having made plans to continue their saga about Jackson in prison. There was little reflection in the media about what they got wrong, and instead, the lens turned on the jury and how they might have gotten it wrong. The prosecution and the media talked about celebrity justice. The jurors were harassed by the media and threatened by unknown individuals after the verdict, which we'll talk more about in the next episode. After the trial, Michael Jackson left Neverland for good. His attorney, Tom Mesereau, told Jackson that Tom Snedden would never let him out of his sight, that he would always be a target, and Jackson believed his home and privacy were forever violated there. Jackson and his kids spent the next four years in hotels, homes of friends, and rented homes. This case destroyed all of Jackson's plans, his home, his reputation, his community connections, and his health. Those close to Michael Jackson believe the trial is what really led to his early death. His employees, friends, and family say although Jackson continued being a devoted parent to his kids and never lost his kindness and generosity towards others, he was never the same and demonstrated signs of depression. His family and friends knew that because of his highly sensitive nature that he would be especially traumatized from the experience of being tried and thought of as a child molester. They note that for Jackson to have his innocent love of children and his gestures of kindness twisted into something sinister was beyond his worst nightmares. Two months after Jackson's acquittals on August 23, 2005, Janet Arvizo was charged and later pleads no contest to illegally applying for and receiving welfare payments over one and a half years. After Jackson's death four years later on June 25, 2009, Martin Bashir publicly mourns Jackson's death and he contradicts all of his narration in his documentary by saying he never saw any wrongdoing after eight months of unlimited access with the pop star and didn't believe Jackson committed any crimes. And that wraps up our coverage of the Arvizo allegations. Next time, we'll conclude our series on the Arvizo allegations with my impressions and summary of the case. Following this summary episode, We'll begin our series on the third sex abuse case against Michael Jackson, the Robson Allegations. We'd like to thank the following websites for their document collection and testimony analysis, which helped guide my mom's research. The Michael Jackson Allegations, Vindicating Michael, and Reflections on the Dance. You can find all source material for this episode through our website, michaeljacksoncaseforinnocence.com. You can reach out to us through our website or on Twitter at Case the Number Four Innocence. Thank you for listening to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast. 